Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Scott Groves uh, on the Edge Podcast, and I am here with my friend Dave Homiak. I hope I said that correctly. Uh, my pronunciation is weak. Um, Dave and I actually belong to the same men's group, which I've mentioned on this program before, called Go Abundance. And Go Abundance is basically for men that are like trying to live life big. A uh, lot of focus on property investment, trying to replace your income with passive investment. A uh, lot of realtors, a lot of lenders, a lot of property syndicators, and we've already interviewed a few people from Go Abundance on this. But I'm really excited to talk to Dave because he's in this I'll call it early phase startup of completely replacing his income. And I, I believe the 60 second readers digest version that I have is Dave was sick of being an engineer, wanted to replace hundred percent of his income as quickly as possible. Uh, made some good property investments up in the smoky mountains with some short term rentals. We'll get into like how that all came to be and what the return is. And it just quickly replaced, uh, I think a hundred, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in kind of base living income off of rental income, and and I love this because I now I know now from our conversation that you're working on some bigger developments, maybe some ten million dollar ground up projects. But I feel like the influencers, the online stuff we hear on YouTube, even some of the people that we talk to, we talk to them way further down their journey where they're doing $30, $40 million apartment complexes. And I think there's a lot of people that mm-hmm. want to be just simply where you're at on stage one, where it's like, hey. I replaced my bare minimum living expenses with passive rental income, and now it's freed up my time to do all this other shit that I want to do. So, Dave, uh, welcome to the program, and what did I miss in the 60-second Reader's Digest introduction of you? No, I think that was a really excellent introduction. Um, Basically, I had looked at what I had, had saved up as an engineer, and I thought I could do less than replace my income but any type of math that I did made me nervous. So I said, okay, what, if I, what would it take for me to not be nervous whatsoever? And I said, obviously, if I replaced my income, I could do whatever I want. And so I said, okay. And in the end, that just meant adding like another property that wasn't a big deal. And when you're adding properties at 10 or 15% down, which you can do in a lot of the Southeast, uh, it's not that difficult of a thing to do in my opinion. Yeah, and, and I think everybody is just scared to start, right? Because they have their nine to five and then they come home and, you know, I don't know how old you are, or what your family situation is like, but a lot of people have kids or they have a spouse or they got the dog or they got the softball league. And it's like, well, you know, I just worked eight or nine hours. Do I really, am I really committed to putting in another eight or nine hours to understand properties and, and cash flow and what the rate of return is on an Airbnb and stuff like that. So if you can back up in time a little bit when you're still doing 40, 50 hours a week at the engineering job, where was the passion, the interest, the commitment to actually make this happen? Did you hate your job that much or were you just passionate about property investment? Like if you can go back in time a little bit, what did, what did that look like to, to kind of, uh, uh, you know, cut your teeth on this in this process? So no, excellent question. I had always been interested in investing in real estate. I remember reading my first book when I was in high school. I'm 57 now. And I invested in my first property at 53. So there was a lot of fear between high school and 53 of what if, what if it starts, you know, what if the roof leaks or what if a pipe breaks? How do I fix that? How would I go about all that? I don't know. Well, I better not try it. And in a way, I'm not, I don't regret not trying it because what I tried was so powerful and awesome that to go from 
no income coming in passively to your engineering income coming in passively in under a year is a great feeling. Like it isn't like, like there could have been a lot of problems and I still would have worked my way through them. Not like I'm making 500 a month on this house and 500 a month on this house. And you know, the pain could have been too great if I had a couple problems rack up in a row. So wait, you went, so, you went from zero to full income replacement in one year, 11 months. That's, that's astounding. And so what, what did that, I mean, what did the plan look like? The, the plan was, and, and so you talk about the motivator of how I got over the fear. The motivator was, I really enjoyed what I did. I did engine calibration for a living. I was driving cars that were coming out a year or two from now. I was, you know, had my computer in the car. I was calibrating stuff, make the cruise control run really smoothly, do diagnostics, stuff like that. So I've been, and I'd been doing that for 20 some years. Uh, it appears that if I, if I get treated what I felt was unfairly uh, by management, that, that that's a significant motivator to get me over any type of fear of investing or whatever. Yeah. So uh, something that happened that I wasn't happy with at the time, I'm very grateful that happened now uh, because it got me over that fear of investing. So the goal was, you know, March of March of 18, I made the decision to replace my engineering income and to do it in under two years. And I knew I could do it with real estate. And the under two years was as important as the replacing. And what happened was I, I looked in, into apartment syndication and I knew I could replace it with apartment syndication. I wasn't sure if I could do it in under two years. And then I had done some, I had partnered with some people that did some rental arbitrage in Austin, Texas, which is they were renting apartments. I was funding some furniture and then we would split the profits when they would charge more per night than they were getting charged for the monthly rent. And so, that wait, worked can, well, but I just watched. Can you talk about that rental arbitrage? Because I, I've heard this before and tell me if I'm getting the theory correctly. I go to a landlord, I'm honest with them. And I say, hey, mm -hmm. I'm going to rent this from you for $4,000 a month. Um, and you're going to give me permission to release it on Airbnb. I'm going to give you your $4,000 a month, but we'll get Airbnb people in there. They'll meet this criteria. They're probably not going to use the appliances. They'll probably actually be less in wear and tear on the property than like a real full-time tenant. And right. then if you can rent that out for $300 a night, 20 nights a month, now you're pocketing six grand from Airbnb. You're paying the landlord four grand. You're keeping the $2,000 spread. Do I, do I got the concept of that right on this rental That's arbitrage? That's exactly correct. And actually you have the percentages correct. Normally a landlord makes between 60 and 65%. And normally the people that are running the rental arbitrage make 30, 35%. So rental arbitrage is a great thing. If you have very little to no money, you know, we would, the, the husband and wife team that I was partnered with were just brilliant. She had an incredible eye for detail and incredible decorating eye. And I mean, they would sign a lease on a place and, and th this is just so brutal. Uh, her husband just, oh my gosh, he just, he, what he would do is he would scout places that he wanted to rent and he would see that it's available October 1st, right? So he wouldn't say anything to them. He'd just get an address. Well, then October 10th would come for sure. They're not renting it out for the month of October. And he would go to them and say, I will sign a lease. I'm willing to sign a one-year lease that starts November 1st if you give me the keys for the today. 
So he would get the keys. He wouldn't have a payment and he would raise the money for November's rent by renting it out the last 15 days of October. And they would go to like Goodwill and stuff from October 10th to 15th to outfit it and then start renting it out. And so they were doing it literally no money out of pocket. I was funding the furniture and then we were splitting the profits. Genius. Genius. So that's kind of like a way, low cost, low barrier of entry, low risk. I mean, if you totally shit the bed and you never rented the thing out one night on Airbnb, which is effectively impossible, um, but let's just say that happened, uh, you right. know, you'd be out one year worth of rent, not the end of the world. Uh, how do you move from there to like stage two? So you kind of cut your teeth there. You, you you start to probably learn the Airbnb systems and how to evaluate, you know, nightly rental costs and stuff. How do we move to stage two? So stage two was where can you make a lot of money for the least amount of down payment? And that term is called cash on cash. I didn't know what cash on cash was then, but that's the term. That's what I was trying to do. I just didn't know what it was called. And cash on cash, just to describe to your listeners, is if you put a $100,000 down payment down on a property, and you then net 50,000 a year, that's 50% cash on cash. And basically that my cash on cash was higher than that in the Smokies when I was investing in 2018. So what I ended up doing to figure out how to, where to go is I jumped on bigger pockets and I jumped on, you know, I was looking in the apartment forums and they're like, yeah, you can make this and it's hard and you grind and, you got to get commercial notes. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. And then I jump into the short-term rental forums and people are talking about, you know, how do you, you know, basically how the rough rule of thumb for most markets is you can earn two and a half times short-term rent, what you would normally make for long-term rent. So for example, if you were going to rent a place out for a thousand a month, you can get 2,500 a month on Airbnb typically. And that isn't always the case. And there's certain markets that are even higher than that. And the Smokies happens to be one of them. So in the Smokies, the other thing, the other two things that make it significantly easier is because it's a secondary home market, the entire market is secondary homes. They're sold turnkey. So you have your silverware, your artwork, your couches, your furniture. So I literally would close midweek and I had everything rented out that first weekend. Right. So three or four days later, money is coming in. Because people, th- people don't want to take their 10-year-old, you know, couch from the Smoky Mountains back that, to their house in Virginia that, or whatever. That and, every renter has slept on, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. And then the other thing that makes it really powerful and, and it's still very powerful to this day is you can get a second home loan for 10% down if you don't have another home there and you're planning on spending 14 days or more a year there, mm-hmm. which I do. Or you can get an investment loan and that's 15% down. And then the fascinating thing about the investment loan is you can use the projected income from the property you're buying to cover the debt to income. Right. So if you're at 40% debt to income in your life already, as long as you have a down payment and decent credit, the places in the Smokies typically throw off enough to easily cover 40% debt to income from what the projection is of that property. Yeah, and you know this is this is interesting because a lot of people who might be watching this are already familiar with the lending world, the real estate world, whatever. But there is mm-hmm. that niche if you're in the conforming market, you're buying a second home with five, ten, fifteen percent down, depending on how mm-hmm. you structure it and the occupancy. I mean, it's a really great way to leverage cash on cash. 
you know, in my world in Southern California or now even in the Las Vegas area where I own uh, a second home, you know, you're looking at minimum, minimum $600,000 entry level point. Then you start to talk about, you know, areas out in like Palm Springs, La Quinta, where they do Coachella and things like that. You know, now for a decent house with a pool that you would be, you know, kind of sexy to rent on Airbnb. Now you're talking about seven, eight, nine hundred thousand, a million. All of a sudden, like your cash on cash, you, you got to have that thing rented a significant number of nights for it to make sense on the upfront capital. You know, if I'm shelling out mm-hmm. 100, 150, 200 grand. So can you walk us through, first of all, I'm embarrassed to even say this. Where are the Smoky Mountains? Why Why are they attractive? Like, I very rarely go, you know, uh, west of Hoover Dam. Um, or, sorry, east. <laughs> I very rarely go east of Hoover Dam here in Nevada. Um, where are the Smoky Mountains? Why are they so attractive? And what is, like, a, a price point there for a rental property? Excellent questions. And I'm sorry you live such a sheltered life, Scott. we got to get you east of Hoover Dam. <laughs> so, uh, basically, the... The Smoky Mountains are a chain of mountains, and they're in many states, but the state that you really care about is the state of Tennessee, and the short-term rental market for the Smoky Mountains is typically Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, Sevierville. There are other cities that also touch the Smoky Mountains that are equally as beautiful, and they're gorgeous mountains, and basically the clouds hang in the valleys and they look like smoke and that's how they get the name smoky mountains but what you had in gatlinburg pigeon forge Sevierville is dolly parton was a really famous singer and she happened to grow up there and she was singing in nashville and then they said hey if you sing in pigeon forge all these people will come and see you and you can help all your all your locals all your community so she said fine and started to set things up. Dollywood is a big apart, or excuse me, is a big amusement park. And they've just recently announced a $500 million expansion. So they're expecting a lot more people to come into the Smokies. So oh, it's getting all those, basically it brought all those people into that particular area of the Smoky Mountains. And then restaurants started to come up, go-kart tracks, uh, Alpine, Alpine slides, all sorts of stuff like that. So it's just, it's like a big, kind of tourist attraction area now that grew out of Dolly Parton and Dollywood. So, you know, if you take the road through the Smokies on the other side of the mountain, it's Cherokee, North Carolina, equally as beautiful, but not nearly as many people go there. And there isn't nearly the demand there. Got it. So the question of how much you can buy a short-term rental in the Smokies for it used to be a lot cheaper. And the crazy thing is, is even though the prices have gone up and up and up, you have, you still have a lot of cash on cash to justify what people are currently paying. So one bedrooms are now probably 300 or 400. When I was starting, they were a hundred thousand. Most of the stuff that I bought, which was a three bedroom, a four bedroom, a five bedroom in 2018, they were all in the three, between three and 400,000. And then the thing is, what ended up happening for me and what kind of got me to help other investors in the future is a year in, I, so I, I bought the first one in May of 18, second one in August of 18, third one in November of 18, February of 19, took a buyout from General Motors. 
couple months later, I'm analyzing my properties. I'm noticing the five bedrooms doing better than the four, the four bedrooms doing better than the three, had no plan going in, didn't like, hey, this works better than the other. But I'm like, oh, seems to be, I'm onto something. This, the more bedrooms, the better. So I end up selling the three bedroom and they were all appreciating because the cash on cash was good. And so I ended up selling the three bedroom and I used that to 1031 and use it as a down payment on an eight bedroom. The eight bedroom does really well now. And I recently sold my four bedroom that was part of that and bought a, just an absolute killer five bedroom with the most incredible views. So, And what does that cost? What is a beautiful five bedroom house with amazing views of the Smoky Mountains? What does that cost these days? Seven, eight, something like that? It, uh, if you would have got it this spring, it would have been seven or eight. They're now, they just keep going up and up and up. It's kind of getting crazy, but like a million, 1.1, and a lot of it is how good are the views? How close are you to the main drag? How close are you to the attractions? Right. So, so can we go back to like the, the original three bedroom that you acquired in 2018? And by the way, for anybody who's listening, who's an investor who's kind of rolling their eyes, oh, he just got in at a good time. I want to remind people that going back to 2015, much less 2018, there was article after article about we're at the top of a housing market, this is a bubble, blah, 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 blah. And now all the same articles just have lighter fluid on them and saying the same shit. But there's really, there's really no demographic information that leads people that are actually analyzing this stuff to think that there's a housing bubble. But I just want to remind people, like, this wasn't some super safe bet back in 2018 that you just got lucky on because there was plenty of naysayers back then about Airbnb is going to get cracked down on by local municipalities. Um, we're in a housing bubble. We're at the top of the market. Interest rates are are going up, yada, yada, yada. And then even going into COVID, it was like, oh, well, it's COVID. Our, our, our Airbnb tenants going to be covered under these COVID laws where you can't evict them. So it's not like you just luck boxed into this situation where it was a foregone conclusion that there was going to be success. There's, I think, I think there's been a tailwind the last couple of years, but when you started investing, it was not, it was not a guarantee, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Is that, is that a fair statement? That's, that's very fair. And so a couple, a couple points. One, I did have a very good friend tell me I was buying at the top of the market and warned me that I should not be doing it. And he invested much more locally. I live in Michigan. He invested in Lansing. He called me a couple months ago to say that he was that he was happy that he had made a very good profit on a duplex that he had bought. And I said, can you remind me the numbers again? He goes, well, I bought it for 100 and I just sold it for 135. And that's a really good return for three years. And he's like, what's going on with you? And I said, oh, I'm tr uh, like, I don't even want to say anything. Right. And I'm like, well, actually, the month after you bought that duplex is when I bought my first one in the Smokies and I just sold it. And he goes, well, what did you pay for it? And I said, uh, 318. And he goes, and what did you sell it for? And I said, 706. So the, the thing that I believe to be true in the Smokies and some of these other hot markets is the same thing I believed in 2018, which is if the cash on cash is there, it, ha it can only go up. It cannot go down as long as the cash on cash is there. Now, if some event happens and all of a sudden people aren't paying what they're paying per night and your occupancy gets cut in half, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. But as long as things keep rolling the way they're going, you know, I see, I see markets with significantly tighter margins and I see people, if, if everything equally shrinks, 
there will still be people pouring into the Smoky Mountains because the results will still be better for them there than it will be in these other much tighter markets. Right. The other thought that I had in May of 18, when I bought my first property, and like I said, four bedroom, $318,000. And being the engineer, I said, what's the worst that can happen? Right. The absolute, like, I can't rent this out at all. Kind of like you were talking about on the rental arbitrage thing. What is the worst that happens? And I said, I run this two or three month experiment. It goes horribly wrong. And I like, I blow this property out. I blow this four bedroom cabin out and I lose like 30 grand. Like that's the worst that happens. And I said, okay, then what's the upside? Well, the upside in theory was it didn't occur to me that I would be able to replace my income as fast as I did. Right. But I did. And so the upside was like, you know, basically financial freedom. <laughs> and it, it sounds crazy now, but it's like, okay, 30,000 might lose 30,000, but might become financially free and get to do really fun stuff all the time. And only stuff I want to do. Yeah. So, well, that's a pretty good, pretty good odds in my mind. And, and, by, to take. And, and by the way, if you're a negative Nelly, like me, um, investing that 30,000 elsewhere doesn't really feel secure anywhere else. Like, all right, so I'm going to go into commodities. Who knows what that's going to do? I'm going to go into the stock market in a, you know, uh, just an index uh, low-cost fund. It's like, well, stock market feels a little frothy. All right, I'm going to buy gold and silver. Well, that's been flat even though we've seen inflation going up. So it's not right. like there's some some home-run place to invest 30000 to $300,000. So why not, why not take that risk on something that you feel comfortable with and you're like, hey, here's the downside, here's the upside, like, that makes just a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I, I want to I do maybe like a real case study. And so maybe you can pick either one of the properties you originally acquired or something we could acquire today because I'd actually like to go through the math. So if I was a new investor and you said the cash on cash is still there on the Smoky Mountains, I kind of just want to do a rough, I'm going I'm to grab my little mortgage calculator over here. Um, yeah, okay. I'm going to do a rough like cash on cash calculation for people that are maybe watching this and trying to get some education. So what could you get into there on an entry level, you know, two or three bedroom that would feel comfortable renting out on Airbnb? Like what's the, what's the price point? Five, six, seven. So for two or three bedroom, you're actually probably in like that six or seven. Okay. But when I talk to my clients, I say, you know, I, I'm very I love my sleep. I don't want to be anxious. I want a good night's sleep. But at the same time, if you're if you have to invest in that five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar range, then do it. But if you can invest in a higher range where there's less competition, your cash on cash does better. Got it. Got it. So if, if you would have asked me in the spring, it was six hundred thousand. Now it's more like eight, eight fifty, something like that. Where if you don't get in there, it's kind of like a dog leg in the cash on cash. You're at you know, 15%, 20% versus you climb up and then you can get into the thirties, you know, Got maybe it. even up to around 40 with a 10% down in a self-management deal. Got it. So let's say I'm going to do the 700,000. Let's say you do the 10% down 70,000. Let's say you have $10,000 in closing costs, exploratory fees. I'm going to fly out there to see the property. I'm going to stay in hotel a couple nights. Then you get the property and maybe you do $5,000 of upgrades, replace the mattress, maybe paint something. And then you've got 10 or $15,000 in like an oh shit operating fund. So let's say if I wanted to buy a seven or $800,000 property out there, I, I'm out of pocket, maybe $100,000 in cash. 
upfront operating costs, emergency money. Like I, I'm, I'm mentally committed to putting a hundred thousand dollars towards this deal. Um, right. What, what do you see Airbnb VRBO or, well, that's my first question. Are you exclusively running out on Airbnb or are you on multiple services? I'm on Airbnb and VRBO. I have a website built out and that would be more for repeat visitors. I'm doing a poor job of getting it out in front of the other, basically my, my former guests. So not getting a ton through my own website, but that would be the goal because there's an 18% delta between what people pay Airbnb and VRBO got it. and what you end up in your pocket. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I'm going to lose 18% off the top. If I'm going brand new, I don't have any repeat clients, Airbnb and VRBO in that seven to 800,000, you know, two, three bedroom house. What, what am I getting for a nightly rental? For seven or 800,000, you should end up at roughly, oh, I don't know, 80 to 90,000 a year gross. Okay. And what that, one of the interesting things is I ended up using a, a daily analyzer calculator for apartments. And when I put in some short-term rental numbers, I got an error message because it said, this is saying that your profit's going to be more than half of what you're taking in. So obviously you've made a mistake. And I'm like, no, that's just kind of the way short-term rentals work. Right. So that's part of the beauty. So if it's 80 to $90,000 gross, what is that like nightly wise? And then what are you estimating as your vacancy rate more or less? So ideally you're at about 70% occupancy. Okay. So 70% of the nights that you own the property. So on a year. So if we do 365 times, um, oh, I can't type today. 365 times 0.7. So you have it rented out about 250 nights a year. Let's say you're expecting 85,000 divided by 255. You're doing somewhere around 300, 350 a night for some of these rentals. Is that, is that sound about right? It does. But the thing is, it's probably going to be more like 450 a night in the summer or even higher for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year Got and it. leaf season on October. And then there's going to be other places that are, you know, 250, 225, maybe 199 a night. You don't want to get too low because you're going to get some people in that you really don't want. Right. Like, oh, Motel 6 is right. less expensive or more expensive than this. Let's just bring all these partiers in. Yeah, I, I've got a buddy in in Coachella, uh, so out in the Coachella Valley, out by Palm Springs, and mm. it, when it's you know 117 degrees out there in the blazing hot summer, he'll rent it out for like 150 to 200 bucks a night. And the funny mm. thing, he finds most of his summer rentals are people who already live in Palm Springs but don't have a pool, and they just want to mm. rent his house for four or five nights to use the pool because they're baking their balls off. Um, wow. So he'll do it for like 150 to 200 bucks a night. But when Coachella or Stagecoach or one of these big festivals are in town, he'll do $1,500 a night, you know, $2,000 right. a night. So he's, because he's got this beautiful mid-century modern with the pool and whatnot. Um, so, mm. you know, he averages out somewhere around 600 bucks a night. And he's just printing money because he bought, you know, 10 years, of course. But uh, mm. yeah, this kind of this math all makes sense to me. Um and so, okay, so you've got, let's say, let, let's go on the low side. You've got 80000 gross. <clears throat> um, is that before or after Airbnb takes their 18%? That's after they take their 18%. Okay, so after they take their 18%, they're like 80000 ish um, And then let's say I don't want to manage it because I don't want to drive up to the Smoky Mountains and I'm never going to fly, you know, east of the of the Hoover Dam. 
Um, what am I going to pay in management fees, insurance? Well, I can do the mortgage, obviously. So six, uh, 630 on the mortgage, 30-year uh, term. Let's say I get a smoking rate because I work in the business times 12 plus taxes, insurance, and maintenance. I'm probably about forty to $42,000 off the top of that 80 in um, mortgage, tax, insurance, maintenance fund. What do I need to think about for um, either additional expenses, property managers, cleaners, things like that? Cleaners is probably roughly 12%. Um, and self-management really isn't that hard. So I recommend that if people want to self-manage that they do it, at least give it a try. If you're not going to self-manage, you're probably spending 20, 25%, depending on who your property manager is. Yeah. So I'm just looking, if I screw this all up, if I have more expenses out of pocket up front, if I mm. don't want to self-manage, if I don't rent this out for the 90000 a year, I get closer to 80000 a year. It's all said and done. Everything, everything, everything. I'm looking about fifty-five to $60,000 in expense. That leaves me, you know, no, no, I'm uh, 50, 50 to 55. So that leaves me between 25,000 and 30,000 a year, net, 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 net profit. So on a hundred grand investment, year one with a little bit of tutelage from Dave, um, I can get this to a 30 to 35% cash on cash return um, because I made $35,000 of profit on my $100,000 um, on my hundred thousand dollar initial investment. Am I reading, am I reading the tea leaves correctly? Pretty much. I, I would think that would be a little high with management. So we might have a number two off, but I think that's very possible with self-management. And like I said, that is not that hard to explain and walk people through. Wow. Um, so why aren't more people doing this? They are. And that's kind of the problem with the market now, right? I mean, we've had, you know, the, the most offers we've been part of in a bidding war is 32. Uh, the more expensive things get, the less bids there are. Mm. And I mean, you know, we've, we've got stuff where we're the only bidder that's, you know, north of 1.6 and we've got, you know, we've had 32 offers and didn't get it. And then we've gotten a bunch of stuff in between. So a lot of the people, because they want to try to maximize that cash on cash, they're buying at eight, 900,000 and up. We have a lot of people in that, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 million that I'm helping. Nice. And there's just, the numbers just make more sense there. So you have more cushion if things do go wrong. Got it. And then talk me through the, oh shit, institutional risk. I mean, obviously COVID is not completely in our rear view mirror. And I, I have to believe Tennessee is one of the more open, you know, kind of red-ish states versus like the communist it's state red. of California that I live in where everything's still right. locked down and max, you know, ma mandates and masks and all this shit, you know, it's not exactly easy to travel or go to an amusement park here. But what's the institutional risk? I mean, uh, uh, Dollywood shuts down because of a COVID outbreak or, um, you know, could, could these municipalities come in and say, nah, we don't really like the vibe of people. This is bringing no more Airbnb. So like when you think about the, oh shit, I got to go back to work as an engineer <laughs> tomorrow. Um, what, what are the institutional risks either, you know, at the 30,000 foot view or the, the, the on the ground view? What's what, what keeps you up at night? So there's about 15 GoBros that actually ever invested in the Smokies now that I'm aware of. And there's probably more. And I have this conversation with most of them. And 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 a lot of the times the conversation goes, what am I missing? There has to be more risk here than I'm aware of. Right. And the answer is, you know, the 
Great Smoky Mountain National Park is the most visited national park in the national park system. 2009, 2010, their visitorship went up when everything was going down. And you think about that, 60% of the country can drive to the Smoky Mountains. And when the economy goes bad, 95% of people don't have jobs, but 85% of people do. And they're afraid to blow lots of money. So they're not flying to Florida and taking a week-long Disney cruise, but they sure are driving someplace and doing three, four days in a cabin. Yeah. So that's where I really like the properties that have a nice, healthy monthly net that you're really well protected. So when COVID hit, there was a ton of people that still wanted to go on vacation. So COVID actually made the rates go up. And what we're seeing is the rates are coming down some. They, I, I think they still stay up in the summers and they still stay up for the holidays, but they're coming down more during the school year because the last year, a lot of people said, hey, if you have high-speed internet, I'm showing up there because my kid's going to be on Zoom anyway. Right. Why would we not go hike in the Smokies after dinner right. instead of just sit at home? You know, so I, I, you did get a spike in the gross rent during the school year for sure. It's funny. I can pretty much relate every scenario in my life back to a line in a movie because I'm like a movie nutcase. And all I can mm-hmm. think of right now is that scene in Dirty Dancing where the father's talking to the hotel owner and he's like, ah, I just don't know how long this is going to last. You know, the kids these days want trips to Europe and blah, 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 blah. So, mm-hmm. you know, contrary to COVID being, you know, a downer for your business, like you said, it created some tailwind. Um, and mm-hmm. you've got some tailwind of rising properties and and let's play out the we are in a bubble scenario, which I which I don't believe based on geographic trends. But let's just pretend something happens tomorrow and the government stops printing money and Biden wakes up and he's a genius and China plays nice. And like, you know, we've just got we've got a strong economy, but everybody wakes up and realize they overpaid for housing. And for some for some reason, housing prices go down. Are, do you give a shit? Because like, as long as you're creating cash on cash revenue, does it matter? Does the property value matter? Does that do people look at a, a nightly rate on a million dollar property versus like, well, I won't pay that nightly rate on a seven hundred thousand dollar property? Or do people on Airbnb not care? So, I you, the thing, the thing that took everybody out in two thousand eight in the Smokies is one, there was an Airbnb. So if you wanted to have anybody manage your place, it was, you know, 40, 45% property management fees. So Airbnb and a bunch of the other companies have brought down that margin significantly. And then the other thing you had going on then is you had like five one arms with balloons. And so people couldn't refinance. Yeah. So everybody that I know that's buying stuff now, it's like you're paying 3.25, 3.75, four, maybe four and a quarter on an investment loan you have a very low loan monthly payment. Yeah. So it's, it's a 30 year make, fixed. You got it's real a 30 year fixed. game. You had, you had real underwriting. <laughs> it, it, there seems to be a lot of inflation going on. Right. Everybody's paying a little bit more. So, I mean, in my mind, when you're making, you know, let, let's just go back to the, you're making 3000 a month and you're renting out 20 nights a month, roughly you, you can drop $150 a night and guess what? You're still no money out of pocket. So you right. just have this incredible cushion. And and the other thing that we had talked about a little bit before we went, before we started the podcast is the only other thing that comes with cash on cash is incredible appreciation because people, you know, the, the amount of people that I talk to, it's really interesting being in the position I'm in of trying to dive into the market and you know, what price points make sense, what amenities make sense, what gives you the best cash on cash return. And, you know, 
the unbelievably simple math of exactly what to buy for an Airbnb in any property, any place in the United States, Smoky Mountains or not. The unbelievably simple math is if you pay $100,000 more for something that breaks down and you have to get a loan for that extra $100,000, that comes out to roughly 500 a month in payment. If you're going to break that down into Airbnb nights, you're renting out, let's say 20 nights a month. So really simple. If whatever you're going to buy for $100,000 or more, can you get $25 more a night for it? And if you can, you've broken even. And if you can get 26 a night, guess what? You just made a profit. So to add a pool into a basement of a new build cabin is $50,000. Can you rent out a cabin with a built-in indoor pool for $12.50 more a night? Absolutely. You're probably getting closer hey, to 75 to 100 a night. Real quick, we had a little bit of delay in the internet. I think that's an important part that I don't want to miss. So you said um, it costs, I think I heard this, it costs about $50,000 to put a pool in the basement of most of these cabinets, indoor situation. Walk us through right. the math again. So the, the math is if you, got, if you added $50,000 to your loan amount, it would end up coming up to be $250 more a month on a 30-year fixed mortgage. Yep. You're going to rent it out for 20 nights a month, roughly. So if you can make $12, if you can charge $12.50 extra because your cabin has the pool and the other one doesn't, then you've broken even. If you can charge $25, you've made $12.50 for every night. And you're getting roughly you know, $75, $100 a night because you have an indoor pool and other people don't. Yeah. So buy the stuff that what you, a view is a hundred thousand dollars. It used to be a hundred thousand is more. Now everything's going up, right. but you know, could you get, would you pay $25 a night extra for a view? Heck yes, you would. So Got it. buy so the view, buy the pool, buy the cabin that looks really cool. You know, people will pay more than that little bit extra in your monthly payment, which you can break down to a nightly payment. Yeah, so um, I, I use, it's funny, I use this number all the time when I'm telling clients like what to offer on their house and kind of going over the mortgage math. I'm like, hey, look, it's your money, you decide. But for mm-hmm. every $10,000 you go up or down in, in in offer price, it's gonna cost you about 50 bucks a month. So if your realtor right. says, you know, ah, you're thinking about offering 920, maybe you should offer 940 to get the property. I'm like, it's your choice, it's your money. But are you gonna be kicking yourself in the ass if you don't get this this house over $100 a month? And so I use the same, so I, I want to kind of reverse engineer this because I've never thought about it backwards. So you and I are talking and you're like, well, Scott, you were looking at this $900,000 place in the Smokies, but if you go to 1.15, you add 250 grand, then um, you know, you're know you you're going to get a pool and maybe some additional amenities that makes it more appealing to rent. So that's uh, $1,250 a month. If I divide that by 1250 divide, let's say I get 20 nights a month out of the rental. Um, mm. that's $62 a night in net cost or, uh, yeah, uh, net cost to me per night to cover that property. So if we decide you and I were, we're looking at a property, if we decide that the 1.15 property can get us $62 more a night than the $900,000 property, cause it has a pool and a really cool deck with a jacuzzi, then it's a no brainer. It's like, Scott, just grab your ball, step up by the more expensive property. Cause you're going to actually get $200 more per night since it has a view and a deck and a jacuzzi and a pool or what, whatever the case may be. Am I conceptualizing this correctly? Absolutely. You spend a little bit more money. You get a lot more return for that money because people are willing to pay more for that 
you know, the extra hundred or two hundred thousand dollars you're spending is is not that much on the nightly rate, but they're willing to pay significantly more on the nightly rate because everybody else has the small cabins. I mean, you just look at AirDNA, AirDNA.co crunches the Airbnb data. Wait, and t- tell me about this resource. I'm not familiar with AirDNA.co. Co, right. So basically, they're getting fed all the Airbnb data or they're grabbing it. I, I, I think they're more scraping, but I don't know for sure. But basically, what they're doing is they're saying, you know, this is what two bedrooms do. This is what three bedrooms do. This is what four bedrooms do. This is how many of them there are in the market. And you can just see supply and demand wise, there's way less of the bigger cabins. And that's kind of why I gravitate to them is you just there's less you know, if you want to rent an eight bedroom, there just aren't nearly as many of those as there are two bedrooms and three bedrooms. So you're all of a sudden you're competing for, there's more people that want them than there are available. Right. So you get to right. charge more nightly rate just based on that alone. The other thing that's pretty interesting about AirDNA is they actually have a revenue calculator that will give you roughly what the gross should be on a property annually that you can use to figure it out. So one of the other things we see pretty much in all short-term rental markets roughly is especially stuff that has management companies that have been around a while is management companies that are grossly mismanaging, especially when it comes to pricing. Yep. And a lot of time what we're seeing is people pricing way too low. So they're like, well, what did you, what did this cabin gross last year? And it's something ridiculous, like ridiculously low. Like instead of the 80, it made like 60, right? Or 55. And then you say something like, can I see, where do you have it listed? And they're like, oh, here's the Airbnb listing. And you look and it's 100% occupied for the next, you know, four or five months. Well, obviously. Yeah, you're not maximizing. (laughs) We we just got our confirmation that you're grossly underpriced. We know that we should trust the AirDNA numbers, right? We know that it isn't something that consistently is going to make what you made because that was ridiculously low. Right. As an engineer by training, let's be honest, how many countless hours have you geeked out on air DNA and just sat there trolling numbers? It's it's sad. It's <laughs> if I if I had a nickel for every hour I spent on air DNA, every cabin I've crunched. Oh my gosh, I've crunched a lot of them. And, and so yeah. that's a good question. Like obviously you've kind of picked your spot, you know, it's close enough locally to you where you can be kind of a local subject matter expert. Um have you looked at other markets? Like how many deals are you evaluating the Smoky Mountains to make one offer, to get one offer accepted? Like what does the math pan out? Because I know this is your full-time job now. I don't have the time to do that. So how many deals or locations are you analyzing to make sure the properties you end up with are, you know, a home run or at least a, at least a triple? So excellent question. I'm about to start looking in other markets and use some of the formulas that I'm using in these other markets. But to answer your question of what exactly we help provide clients in the Smoky Mountains is kind of like a tagline of what we're doing is what's the only thing better than investing in one of the best markets in the country. And that's investing in the top 25% of that market. And I can show you numerically what it takes to get that done. And so we're looking over, you know, here's your spreadsheet. Here's your deal analysis sheet. I want you to punch I want you to crunch the numbers because I want you to feel comfortable. I don't want to be, you know, I believe Dave and it didn't work out. No, I want you to crunch the numbers and we both agree and I'll double check your work, but we are going to guide you. And there's plenty of clients that I'm one of the few real estate agents that clients will say, I think I want to buy this. And I go, no, you don't, no, you don't. 
you know, yeah, I, need, and this is what we need to work on to get you over here to better stuff. I, I rather just trust Dave because there's a I, I barely, barely made it through geometry in high school. So there's a <laughs> there's a zero percent chance I'm going to crunch a spreadsheet better than you can. So um, I, I well, disagree. They, the the other half of that and and the other reason why I'm asking clients to do it is I will say things like, what do you want? And they'll say, I want cash on cash. And I don't care about anything else. And then I used to spend a lot of time crunching a lot of numbers and I would handpick some incredible properties and I'd say, well, here you go. And they go, well, but I don't like this and I don't like that. And it, it appears that gets me a little upset when I spend a bunch of hours and I've met what they claimed was their criteria. So the way I do it now is say, look, we're going to get you educated. I want you to pick some places that you're happy with. And then I know generally what they're looking for. And then when stuff like that comes up, we will try to pass them to the clients that we'll be accepting. But I found that if I do a bunch of work and give it to people and they tell me, no, that isn't, you know, I don't like it. My wife doesn't like whatever. It just, it doesn't go well. Right, right. So I... What's interesting is if you and I worked together, I would say very clearly, Dave, in the last 20 years, I've made every property investment mistake you can possibly imagine. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you a greatest hits list real quick. Uh, okay. In uh, August of 2016 or 2017, right before the market crashed, I bought a $350,000 condo with a couple friends up in Vegas because we were coming to Vegas so much. And it was a great deal. It was going to go up in value, blah, 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 blah. We were going to be mm -hmm. able to rent it out. Within a year, uh, Zillow had the property worth $75,000. And the, um, the homeowners association wanted to just completely stepped their throat on any out-of-state owners. So they said mm. no short-term rentals under 90 days. Um, oh, my God. And then, and then the state of – or the city of Vegas and the county of Clark County came in at the very, very early stages of Airbnb, and they, they saw what Airbnb could be, and they knew mm. that was an institutional threat. Like, that was a huge, huge threat – to the casino business and the hotel business. So mm. still to this day in Clark County, you cannot rent out an Airbnb for less than 30 days. And if you're wow. over 30 days, you need a real lease here, which then means they establish occupancy, which means mm. if they want to go into squatter mode, you're kind of screwed. So they're really anti-Airbnb in Clark County. So I made the worst possible mistake there. It took 10 years for the property to come back to a value of like 200,000 and we finally sold it and me and a couple partners you know each pitched in 20 grand at the closing to just get rid of the fucking thing. Uh so that's mm -hmm. greatest hit number 1. Uh greatest hit number 2 is I bought an amazing four unit in Phoenix, Arizona because I was going up there a lot. That's where our kind of regional market uh center was for the mortgage mm -hmm. company I was working for. Amazing cash on cash at the time, 17%, blah 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 blah, but the price mm -hmm. point was too low. I got a four unit for 300 grand. So 17% mm. cash on cash, one, was not going to change my life. And two, right. even though we did all the inspections and we had a very honest realtor and we did the this and we did the, the inspector didn't notice this one little leak that mm. actually when we pulled back the wall, it turned out the T that separated three of the units had major mm. mold infestation because there oh was a my. leak that nobody knew about. So $30,000 worth of remediation and mm. um, it wiped out basically four years of that 17% return. And now I'm mm. like, well, fuck this place. I'm selling it. I'm done with it. Um, mm. And there, and there's some other greatest hits. So 
One, if I told you I really just care about cash on cash, I would really just care about cash on cash. I would not tell you after you sent me the property. Well, Dave, I was really looking for a mid-century modern that had better cash on cash. And then I would expect you to fly out here and kick my ass. So that's number one. Right. Um, number two, what are, you know, again, not the institutional risk, not the you you screwed up the the spreadsheet in Airbnb, you know, you can't make as much as you can. What what are the risks of like maintenance, liability? tenants like how do we make sure we're going to do this dave let's go how do we make sure we don't end up with a property that comes back to bite me in the ass because there's you know pick issue abc with the property itself right the one thing you do have in the smokies that you don't have in most other parts of the country is if you want a view there's two choices the top of the mountain, which is a good choice, but really expensive. But the other 90% of the places with views are the side of mountains. So there, you know, we run into, you know, there's a foundation issue or the, the biggest thing that I see that I'm just like, holy cow, like, I don't get how you can be unaware of this is people that let basically the, the drainage changes a little bit and they're letting water run down the side of their house. And it used to be fine. They didn't, it didn't come that way when they built it. Just nobody cares and nobody looks at it. And I've seen many places that you really have to be careful. So, I mean, when I look at any place, that's one of the first things I look at, but it's kind of my more because I'm an engineer and I've seen, I've heard stories, bad things that happen. I'm going to put some money into the new place that I bought because it it there was some stuff that was overlooked, but I knew there was enough upside on what I bought that I was fine with it. Got it. So but we're talking that's about that's one of the big ones to watch out for. So are you guys like when you're looking at a property that this is presumably going to be a long term hold, the whole point is cash on cash. Are you guys doing like geological and structural and general and roof? I mean, like what's what's the cost of inspections out there in the Smoky Mountains? Because I know in some places in LA where the nicer homes are on the side of the mountain. Right. It can get pretty expensive. You start doing, you know, some core samples and geological and foundational reports and stuff like that and structural engineering reports. You know, you can be in for five or $10,000 before you know whether or not you're going forward with the deal for sure. Right. And typically what we do is just a regular home inspection and, you know, 500 bucks, 700 bucks, whatever, 800 bucks. And then basically though, that guy goes over the foundation. And if there's any cracks, anything that any moisture, anything like that, then it, okay, hold off. If we have, if the inspection contingency is coming up, we'll wave, like we'll wave the rest of the place, but we're not waving this because this can get into real money. Right. And then you're getting engineering firms out and you're getting people to just honestly assess it and just, this is a big problem or it looks bad, but it's cosmetic or, you know, this is really bad. Yeah. And then you need to get the, you know, and then the dollar amount to get it fixed. And that's where it gets interesting where people think their cabin's worth whatever, which it is, but it's worth that with a proper foundation. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of times it's all you had to do is like literally two shovels of dirt or some rocks to push the water away and you would have saved $50,000 and you oh, didn't. It's amazing how destructive water is. It's bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, without a doubt, I, I've I've seen some places in LA because you know we don't get a ton of rain. So mm -hmm. same thing when we get when we get a a flash flood of rain, it's like of everything you realize like oh my god my roof's probably been leaking for four years but we just haven't had a, a real rainy season <laughs> or you know I've got I've got this waterfall coming through my backyard and I've seen some 
beautifully staged houses that they just caught some bad timing. People show up for the uh, for the open house, and there's just a pool of water in like the back, right. the back, uh, right. the back room, and it's like, ooh, we got some major problems before we sell in this place. Right. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to ask you a totally unfair question, and maybe you don't even want to answer it. W- what's the next market? That's the Smoky Mountains, 2017, 2018. Uh, that's tough. I'm, I will have a much better answer in two months from now when I start, basically I'm going to hire a couple of virtual assistants and have them run some of the formulas that I'm using in the Smoky Mountains to figure out the best stuff in a bunch of other markets. So there are people that say, you know, the Smokies are bad. Why? Because they're only buying, they, they're used to buying two bedroom cabins and they bought four or five of them because they were making money. And now they're like, they don't make money, which is true. But there's there's still other niches in different areas and different price points and different amenities that do make money. So my goal is to kind of take what I've been doing in the Smokies and start looking at other markets and figure out where you can make some really good money now. And by default, the cash on cash is going to be driving the appreciation. So, you know, is there something that's going to take off? One of the things, one of the things that I've recently heard about the Smokies is the Chamber of Commerce does a survey for people, the guests that come in that go to their website. And in the past, the numbers were something like, have you ever been to the Smokies? 80% of the people said yes. And then they said, are you planning on coming back? And 80% of the people said yes. So it was more a stable type population. What they're seeing now, or what I heard they're seeing now is they said, have you ever been to the Smokies? And only 15% of the people are saying yes, because it's getting a lot of traction on like Expedia and it's a top 10 vacation destination and a travel, I don't know where, but there's a lot of people hearing about it. And so now it's 15% of the people say they've been to the Smokies before, but 80% are saying they're coming back. So if that wasn't happening, in my mind, the cash on cash is going to start drying up at top speed. So what other market is going to get that marketing attention two to three years from now? I'm not sure. Right. But certainly, you know, Dollywood's this big amusement park and they just announced a $500 million expansion a couple of months ago. So obviously they're looking at some data and they're willing to drop 500 million on this expansion. Yeah. So I think that does well, but I mean, in my mind, I'm looking for clues like that in other markets and, you know, who has the theme park that's doing a huge expansion, who has whatever that has the, the money to drop on a proper, a proper study. By the way, and you're yeah. As a theme park nerd, I, I I do know that that five hundred million dollar expansion is mostly on an area aimed at families with young children. So in the last like ten years, they were focusing on thrills, but now they're pumping huge amounts of money into people with uh, like five to twelve year olds. So that seems to be the market that they're really uh, gunning for. And that's an excellent kind of an excellent thing to know about that. I, w- I wasn't aware of that, but when people talk about the cabins that make the most money, it's, there's a lot of bedrooms and there's a pool and the pool can be very modest. It can be a, you know, a 15 feet by eight feet or an eight feet by 12 feet. And people are like, well, who's, who's renting that? Well, it isn't people like our age that are like, yeah, I want to swim in a very tiny pool. You think about it, it's the grandparents with a lot of money that want to treat their grandkids. And if my grandkid wants to swim, I'm dropping whatever money it takes for my grandkid to swim. Yep. So that makes a ton of sense that they're adding more rides in that area. 
And that will end up driving more, in my opinion, grandparents and kids of that age that like these smaller pools is typically what you're putting in the in the basements, not big ones. Yeah. And to your point, you know, if you're a larger family who has three, four, five kids, all of a sudden just the cost of flights get cost prohibitive. So if you can drive mm. to the Smoky Mountains, it's like, well, I might even spend as much in the Smoky Mountains on an Airbnb plus amenities plus attractions as I would going to Europe. But at least I'm not dropping 12 grand on flights. Um, right. So that exactly. makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if you ever need anything about amusement parks, talk to Chris. He's a strange, strange man who's been an enthusiast <laughs> since we were probably five years old. And a couple Love times I, a couple times I've even tested him. I'm like, Chris, what year did Viper at Magic Mountain, California come out? And he, he once in a while, he's off by a year, but he's usually oh like pretty, pretty spot on. <laughs> so he's got his finger on the pulse of the news of, uh, okay, of amusement cool. parks. So. I, I'm impressed that he knew that stuff about Dollywood. I didn't know that, but now I will add that to my information bank. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, it's funny. Here in Los Angeles, about, I'd probably say five or six years ago, the market that you're describing in the Smoky Mountains was this area called Idlewild. It's up in the hills right before you get to Palm Springs. And it was always, quite frankly, kind of this like, hippie kind of white trash community like awkward mm. and and you could buy you know a two-bedroom place for a hundred grand and you could buy an estate for 500 and now mm. you know entry level price is probably five or six hundred thousand because everybody realized mm. like oh wait this is on the way to palm springs i can drive a half hour down the mountain and have world-class food but i can have mm. kind of this mountain retreat where i'm with this interesting cross-section of rich entertainment people from California or from Los Angeles who are going up there to have two weeks to write their manuscript or their, you know, uh, TV pilot. Mm -hmm. But I also get some hippie granola kind of salt of the earth people. Like it's, it's so LA it's like the mountain suburb of LA. And so instead mm -hmm. of like big bear and I, and, and Lake Arrowhead, which are still really booming now, Idlewild's the point where it's like, dude, if you could have got in a couple years ago, you'd be printing right. money at four or $500 a night for an Airbnb. And uh, I know I helped a couple people with loans that did just that. And I, nice. I of course, cause I don't do anything right in real estate. I didn't jump on that train <laughs> back then. <laughs> Um, so a couple couple closing questions, if you don't mind sharing. What are some areas or states that you're going to have the virtual assistants looking into? Have you targeted anything, or is this just going to be really a crunching the numbers spreadsheet? There's a lot of places that a lot of people are driving to now. Uh, certainly Panhandle of Florida. And, I mean, you have Destin, Panama City Beach. That's been really hot for a while. So the things that we're finding are you go just a little bit outside of where everybody's looking. And the returns get a lot better, right? Yeah. Just makes it, you're 20 minutes away, a half hour away. No, you know, you're not getting that massive competition when it comes to the bidding wars, but the numbers still make sense. So I'm really big on anything that the numbers make sense. If you give me proven numbers and you give me a list price, we can figure out right away whether it's a good deal or not. Right. So Gulf Shores, Alabama is going to be one of them. I know there are some short-term rental only communities outside of Orlando. I'm going to be looking into um, Blue Ridge Mountains, some Georgia stuff, some North Carolina stuff. I'm really big on risk avoidance and risk avoidance comes where a government is greatly incentivized to not regulate. So you look at the sales tax, the lodging tax, that they collect on Airbnbs in Sevier County and basically between state st state taxes, 7%,
County tax is 2.75%. Lodging tax is 3%. So they're collecting this huge amount of money. There aren't enough hotels to support the people. And they've got all these businesses built up that if you don't let people have the short-term rentals and let the people in the cabins, these businesses aren't going to do well. Right. So they're incentivized to leave everything be. Now, in certain cities, there's regulation. Um, you know, there's tourist uh, resident tourist permits in the city of Gatlinburg. City of Pigeon Forge, you have to pay a little bit extra tax, but there isn't any official permit. Um, Severe ill, they just added one. But you, I like stuff where like they're going to leave you alone. Like they're really incentivized to leave you alone. You look at a lot of really powerful markets like Nashville, uh, San Diego, Denver, San Diego, New York City, Ann Arbor. I mean, all those just got crushed and just regulated to death. Austin, which I was in before with my friends. You look at all that stuff and it's like, I'm, you can, you can make some money, but if you're willing to risk that regulation, that's something I'm unwilling to do. I'll take, you know, I'll take the slightest bit less return, but I guarantee I'm going to be making it or as close as I can four or five years from now. Right. The other thing that's interesting about where I am is I've been, you know, on other podcasts and I've talked to a bunch of other people. And I'll post on Facebook groups and I'll get a lot of clients that, you know, let's just sit down and talk about stuff. And, you know, one of my questions is, have you ever invested in real estate? And then it's normally followed up by, you know, what is it? And are you making any money at it? And there's one guy that I talked to that actually was tying the numbers of the Smoky Mountains and they'd regulated Miami. And he happened to be like a block across the city of Miami border. And so everybody they were running out of his out of the city of Miami would now go that extra block to his house. And he had like four bedroom with a pool in it. And he's like, this is the coolest thing ever. And, you know, the talk we had was, yeah, that's awesome. But when your city gets irritated because they start to get overrun, then are they going to get regulated? You know, right. and that's just something to really watch out for is it isn't all about the cash on cash. It's the cash on cash where it's safest and you're not going to get regulated. Yeah. We have a, uh, I'm trying to think how much I can say here. Let's just say you and I probably have a mutual friend who does mm -hmm. a lot of property investing and he has his public 10 point plan on, you know, what properties he looks to invest in. And the 11th point that he doesn't put out there publicly is uh, number one, never buy a property in California. And point, <laughs> point number 12 is if, if, if I might need short-term rentals, in order to get through a hard time, um, do not buy in a blue county or a blue state, period. Because it's like right. the tenant laws are always going to be, uh, uh, or the laws are always going to be in the favor of the tenant. They're never going to back up the landlord. And the last thing you want to do is have, it doesn't matter the number, anywhere from 100,000 to 100 million in a property right. where the government just arbitrarily takes away a massive, massive stream of income. Um, right. And so I think it's funny because like he doesn't want to make enemies when he gives these talks publicly, but he's right. like very honest if you're willing to put money with them is like no California, no blue states. <laughs> right. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, I right. get it. I get it. Um, so a, a couple questions to close here. And um, I, I got this from another mutual friend of ours who runs a podcast. Favorite movie and why, Dave? Favorite movie is Heat. Love that movie. Oh, my God. And I... I can tell you, if you want to get in really bad trouble with your wife, crank up the gun scene at like one or two in the morning when you're watching it. <laughs> I, 
Oh man, I'm glad our marriage survived that. <laughs> what is going on? Why is you have to crank this up? You just have it's to. The best. I mean, I I love that movie because it is like if you want to be a bad guy, like that was an unbelievably well-researched movie. And that is if you want to be like a top of the notch bad guy, do all your shootings correctly, do all your do all your stealing correctly, all your robberies. That is the way to do it. I I just love that movie. So such yeah. such a good movie. And the funny thing is, ninety uh, percent of the scenes in that movie were filmed probably within five miles of my old house. So from the downtown shootout scene to all the restaurant scenes, um, other than the scene when they're at the port of Los Angeles or the port of uh, Long Beach, virtually right. all of that was filmed right within a few miles of my old house in L.A. So it's like every every scene, I'm like, oh, I've been there. I've been to that diner. Oh, I, I've been in that right. bank. I've been in that bank that they just right. robbed. Um, so that that was fun. I love that movie. Um, and, and that, then and. That will never be remade because there's no way they're going to say, yes, bring some firearms to the airport and have a shootout. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, airplanes are landing at LAX. It's like, yeah, that was a pre 9-11 type movie. Totally, totally. I don't even know if you can get away with that in downtown. They probably wouldn't let you issue the permit now. Um, and then last question, you can go any direction you want on this, whether it's personal or technology we forgot to talk about or property investment techniques we forgot to talk about. What's the question we forgot to ask? Like, the, I know you've been on a lot of podcasts talking about this. What are the good questions they asked that I forgot? Or what's the thing that you're like, man, I really wish we would have talked about that or Scott would have asked, asked that question because I've, I've got an itch to answer that question. The question that I guess it would be more a challenge that I would have for everybody else out there is I'm, I was shocked at, it was really hard for me to take a buyout, even though I'd kind of done what I did. It's like that W2, man, it's just so, like, oh my goodness. It's like, oh, this is my safety blanket. And now that I'm, you know, basically about a year and a half in, I was like, I can't believe that it took me this long and it, that it is not that challenging to find other really fun stuff and, and other things that catch your interest and help and, you know, that you can make money at. So, I mean, I just think there's a lot of people that don't do an honest self-assessment of whether they would be ever be able to make the leap and are kind of trapped in a W-2. And I think if you like a W-2, then more power to you. But if you're thinking about it, the thing I think that I overlooked the most is when I got done with my W-2, I was going to do other stuff I found interesting that potentially would make money. And I really didn't need nearly as much to leave. And I'm just having a great time. I'm traveling here. I'm traveling there. I, you know, my, I have two kids that are in college and it's like, let's go on vacation that, well, I have this and I have this, you know, this, this orientation. Okay. Well then we can move the vacation a week or we can do whatever. And I, you know, shoot on vacation here and grab my kid in high school and we go on vacation there and just, it opens up so many possibilities. And, you know, I talk to these people and they're like, you know, I'm like, can you do this? And well, I don't have any more vacation days left. And I'm like, my first thought is like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, you don't need the vacation days because you can easily get out there and support yourself in, in doing money-making things in way fun ways. But yeah, so I just ask people to kind of look more at what they think they're capable of and then talk to people that have done it to kind of critique their program where you talked about, you know, I've invested in some properties. There's, you know, there's a couple of people that I know, a couple of friends of mine, they're just really good at investing in property. And like you run it by, you know, you run it by me, you run it by Joel, 
Like he will, in five minutes, he will tell you where it's a really good deal or not. And he will throw out all the little things that you might not think about. And so, I mean, that's kind of the other thing is there's a lot of people in your life that are willing to help you. It's whether you're willing to ask for that advice and that feedback, and maybe you don't take it, or maybe you just say, I still need the W2, or I still don't want to buy the whatever I want to buy. But I, you know, I found there's a lot of people that are generous with their time that are willing to help me that I wished I had didn't feel like I was taking advantage of them. Right. Not, I, it wasn't like a trust thing. It was just like, I felt like I was intruding in their life. And in reality, they're getting, they're, they're getting joy and, and feeling good about themselves or helping others. So that's amazing, man. That's, and, and you know, you, you had the, the blessing and the hard work and the, the right timing, the right, everything to do it all in a year. But nothing says, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s that you can't do it a little bit at a time. You know, keep the W-2 job and spend some extra right. hours at night trolling around. What was that? AirDNA.co. As soon as we get out here, there's a little mountain community outside of Vegas where our second home is that I mm. would love, 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 love to have a mountain cabin out there. But everything's mm. like over a million bucks. And you kind of just gave me the courage to be like, well... If the numbers pencil out with Airbnb, why not have the mountain cabin at a million or a million five? Because I've got ten percent down, and if I, you know, if I can have my wife manage it and uh, and and you know rent it fifteen twenty nights a week or a month, and I can go use it five nights a month to live up in these beautiful mountains outside of Vegas, it literally makes you feel like you're in a totally different world. It's nothing like the Vegas people are thinking of. It's like all of a sudden, like oh, that makes a lot of sense. And if that could start chipping away at my W two income to replace that passively. Man, what, what a blessing just like this conversation has been. So on a personal note, thank you, Dave. Um, on, a, on a professional sure. note, thanks for being on the podcast. This is great stuff. And uh, sure. I think we're, we're going to be in touch by email to have some conversations about either the Smoky Mountains or help me analyze some, some cabins out here in the, uh, in the Nevada I'd, mountain ranges. I'd love to help you analyze some stuff in Nevada, wherever you want to look at them. I'm, I'm pretty good at handicapping whether things are going to work or not. So Cool. And I'll put a place on your radar, which is going to sound really weird and the only reason people know about this town is because of the brothels but Pahrump, <laughs> nevada is like a booming market because a lot of people who can't uh, afford to live in like las vegas metro are now moving out there and a lot of people who want to get away they don't want the vegas experience but they might want to gamble. They might want to be a little bit closer to the mountains. Who knows? Maybe they want to visit the brothel. I've heard Airbnb out there is doing really well, and it doesn't have the same regulations of, like, Vegas Metro. So maybe we'll have to look at that area, too, for an Airbnb. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks for being on. Yep. Thank you. Good talking to you, Scott.